being here this morning on Pastor Appreciation. We've been talking about the character of God for some time now. I thought what better topic to discuss on Pastor Appreciation Day than the wrath of God. Amen. Everybody's excited. Like, it's just like, man, wrath of God. This is going to be encouraging. I mean, this is good. You know, nobody sings worship songs about the wrath of God, do they? And the wrath of God is one of the most interesting subjects and topics throughout Scripture. And I think a lot of times in my mind, from what I hear, it's often misrepresented. It's misunderstood. And I mean, wrath in general is kind of a difficult subject to think about. Because if you think about yourself, like how many of y'all, you know, you got angry this week about something? Did you get anybody got like you got angry this week? And see, we have wrath as human beings. We have uh, outbursts of rage, and sometimes it's road rage because we get really upset at the dude who drove improperly in front of us, and we, and we throw a fit of rage. And I remember when I was a kid, my mom's here this morning. She remembers that she would have to try to, try to restrain me at times because I had anger issues as a kid. And, you know, anytime I get mad, I just, I just do damage to drywall. You know what I'm talking about? I just Because drywall's weak, and it makes you look strong as a kid if you punch a hole in the drywall. Anybody, amen. And so you, you vent that wrath, you punch a hole in the drywall, and I would do stuff like that. My buddy Richard Jones, he's going to get mad at me for saying this, but when we were in high school, man, that guy had a real, the Lord's really done work in his heart, but he had real anger issues back when we was in high school. And, uh, and when we played baseball, if he'd strike out, man, he would take his helmet off and headbutt his helmet. And I'm like, that's the opposite of what you do with a helmet, actually. It's supposed to protect your head. But, uh, but anger will get you to do dumb things on it. Like anger causes us to do, and throughout scripture when we talk about human anger, matter of fact, James says that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. More often than not, your anger and your wrath as a human being is messed up because it's defiled because you love the wrong things. God's wrath and our wrath is different because God's wrath is perfect. And when he gets angry, he gets angry because if he doesn't, he ceases to be good. Some things need to be gotten angry about. Amen. When there is injustice, when people are abused, when people are oppressed, when people are, are, are broken and, and others are hurting them and damaging them and bringing them into destruction, those things deserve righteous anger moved toward them in a right way. But the problem with us is we love ourselves more than anything. So really all of our anger can be traced back to whether or not you just simply inconvenience me. Amen. If I just get inconvenienced, I'm going to blow my top because I, because I love myself more than anything else. And that's the difference between God's wrath and human wrath. There's a big distinction between those things. And so it's important that we understand God's wrath and we understand the difference between what it means for us to be angry and what it means for God to be angry. Because when we think about God, I think when people think about the character of God, most people's perception of God... And we read about it last week how some very famous atheists basically paint this picture of God as a dictator, an authoritarian, angry, bullying, just, just, just terrible, wrathful, vengeful God. And in Jesus Christ, what we're finding out, last week we talked about kindness, we're finding out that God couldn't be further from that. But yet we still do see the wrath of God in Scripture, so we have to figure out how to deal with it. What does it mean? What is God talking about? What does it mean when God gets angry and He is full of wrath? But see, God's anger occurs not quite as often as you think it would, and when it does, it's very interesting how it occurs. 
Like in the Old Testament, when we think about God flooding the earth with Noah or in the, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that is God bringing justice and, and, and against the evil of humanity when he sees human evil in the world. He brings justice against that. But in those stories, in both of those stories, God is not angry. Matter of fact, in the flood, it says that it grieved his heart. He was in a place of grief that he had to bring justice and judgment in the earth. But every time God brings judgment or justice, it's because if he doesn't do something, the way that it plays out will actually be worse than if he did. So if God did not get upset at injustices and evil, we could no longer declare God is good. Amen. How would you feel? And we know this. Like, How would you feel if somebody were to abuse your child? You know what you're going to feel come up in your heart? You're going to feel anger. And see, when something comes against that which we love, we are made in the image of God and we sense anger in the same way that we do. The problem with us is is that we use our anger in defiled ways, but God uses his anger flawlessly. Now, one of the verses, Exodus 34, verses 6, we've been talking about this because God reveals himself to Moses. And Moses said, Lord, I want to know who you are. Would you show me your glory? And he, and he reveals himself and he's basically setting a precedent that from here on out, I want you to reveal me and this is how I want you to see me. And he just shows him his back parts. He doesn't even see the fullness of God. But he says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious. Notice what it says. Slow to anger. What it doesn't say is wrathful, vengeful, angry, malevolent. It says, no, he is gracious, he is compassionate, he's merciful, and he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But most people say, but isn't the God of the Bible, I mean, I've read some stories in the Bible, isn't the God of the Bible mostly angry? I mean, when he looks at sinners and sin in the world, is he just not about to blow his lid and pour out fire and vengeance and wrath on everybody? I mean, like, he's probably in a bad mood right now. Can I tell you this? I personally believe that God woke up in a good mood this morning. And I personally believe that that's what Jeremy and I were talking about how just like that video, I like joy in the church. I don't, one of the fruits of the spirit is not anger. And another one of the fruits of the spirit is not seriousness. Even though we are speaking about serious things, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy and peace and patience and self-control, not anger and seriousness. Amen. Right. So in the church, there should be joy, there should be love, there should be self-control, there should be patience. And when when it says that God is slow to anger, it's kind of interesting because if you read it in the Hebrew language, it says that he's got a long long nose. That's weird. Like, What's that got to do with anger? See, if you're angry in Scripture in the Hebrew language, it means that you've got a hot nose. Anybody ever get real mad and they get red? Y'all just get red. You just start boiling over. You get red, red as a beating this dude's man. I mean, I, I looked at Mark Stoops yesterday. Mark Sto- if you look at Mark Stoops on the sideline, he's all the time going. <laughs> I mean, just, just doing that. Just, and he's red as a beat. I'm thinking that's what it means. That's, he's got a hot nose right now. <laughs> but see, when you, do, when you don't have a hot nose and you're not angry, you're slow to anger. It literally means you've got a long nose. You don't get hot as quick. You're able to control yourself. And the Proverbs actually says that when you're slow to anger or you're slow to wrath, when you don't get angry quickly, you're actually a man or a woman of understanding. You don't allow your anger and your wrath to get the best of you. So it's different when we talk about those things. And patience itself, being slow to anger. When people get ruffle your feathers, if you want to demonstrate the character of God, you don't demonstrate the character of God by getting angry quickly and pouring your wrath out on people. You, get, you demonstrate the character of God by being patient with people and being slow to anger. Now, there is a point 
When people push your buttons long enough that you got to take some action on some things, don't you? But how we take that action means everything. Now, God is slow to anger, and His anger is an expression of both His justice and His love for a broken world. But when we talk about the wrath of God, we're talking about a metaphor that is used... that. A metaphor that, 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 that describes how God feels when he witnesses human evil. So let me give you an example in the Old Testament. I read probably 50 verses just like this this week, and I don't want to. I've already got a lot enough to read, but so I'm just going to read one that is in this vein. But throughout Scripture, God's wrath is revealed by God handing people over to the consequences of their own decisions. Judges 2.14 says it like this. And, and you can read, I could read 50 verses that say it just almost exactly like this. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And this was after they rebelled against Him. They worshiped false gods. And it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And He gave them over. That language over and over again, He gave them over. Is in Scripture, whenever God's anger is kindled, He simply hands them over to the plunderers who plundered them and He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. So God's agent of, of judgment is almost never direct. When we talk about God's wrath, because most people that I speak with, when they talk about their sinful past, they're afraid that God is going to punish them for their sins. And can I tell you this? Apart from Jesus Christ, you are going to experience some measure of punishment for your sins. But what the Bible teaches is that right now, ultimately, your sins are punishment in and of themselves. God doesn't have to pour out a thunderbolt or a fireball out on you. When you sin, you receive the punishment and the consequences for that sin as you act in that sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin takes you down a punishment path all its own. All God has to do when you say, hey God, I'm not interested anymore. I'm going to do things my own way. And you begin committing sinful actions. God doesn't have to do anything. All He has to do is say, okay, you don't want me? I'll step back. And He hands you over. He releases you to your own desires and to your own actions. And so the person doing the judgment ultimately in the old covenant, because what we like to think is all the time that God gets angry, people rebel against God, and then he directly comes out in his wrath and in his hot nose and just kills people directly. But each and every time in the Old Testament, sometimes you see things that are a little bit vague, but the majority of times when God brings justice and judgment, he hands them over to their enemies. They worship other gods. They worship false gods. They worship the gods of Babylon. And he says, okay, you don't want to worship me? You prefer to worship the gods of Babylon? I'll hand you over to those gods. And Babylon comes in to do what they're called to do against them. He gives them over to their desires. Now, this makes much more sense when you see our world because our world is continuing to reject God and say, God, you know, we're not really interested in you. We don't want you. We definitely don't want you in our schools. And if anybody were to pray at a ball game, for God's sakes, we're going to call the ACLU because we don't want the Lord in our stuff. And as we push him out, you know what the Lord does? He doesn't bring direct punishment. He gives people space. He gives people grace. He's slow to anger. He's patient. But what he does do is say, if you don't want me, I'll lift my hands. I'll give you exactly what you want. And we're seeing the ramifications of it in our own children as they're growing up, learning all kinds of foolish doctrine and teaching and moving further and further away from the truth of God. 
And everybody finds so many other things to blame it on, but the last thing they blame it on, they are continuing to believe that, no, this is a good thing. We need to move further away from the bondages of religion and of God and of, of these truths. And this, is, this frames up for us what Paul says in the New Testament about God's wrath. And I'm going to hang out in Romans 1 just for a minute. And this is going to be a little bit studious this morning, a little bit of a teaching, but it's going to help you understand the character of God. Romans 1.18, it says, "...the wrath of God is being revealed." from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. So what he's saying is, hey, the wrath of God, guys, is not something that is just going to happen in the future. The wrath of God is something that if you look around in the world, it's happening right now. It's happening right now and it is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, right, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And what he's saying is this, he's saying what people do at the end of the day, and so many of us, we, we do this in our very own lives. I've done this. You ever got to the place where it's like you've got certain sins in your life that you just want to figure out how you can justify and hang on to, but you hear the truth and you hear the Holy Spirit saying to you, you need to let that go. You need to turn from that. You need to get that out of your life. It's destroying you. It's destroying your relationships. It's causing problems in your life. It's causing issues in your marriage. And you hear that voice and the truth of God saying, let go of it. But you suppress the truth because you would rather hold on to the unrighteousness. And what he says is people do this all the time. They suppress the truth. They say, I don't really want to hear that. I would prefer to hold on to this sin in my life. And I'm going to suppress that truth in my unrighteousness. Now he goes on to say, in verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that the people are without excuse. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying that deep down, every human being on the face of the earth has an inner awareness that deep down they know there is a God, and they can tell there's a God simply from looking at creation. They can look at the faces of human beings. They can look at the stars in the sky. They can see the sun come up in the morning and the birds flying in the tree. And they know that this did not come from nothing. There had to be a creator. There had to be a designer. And he says they're without excuse because every human being has the imprint of the image of God on the inside of them. And so if they believe that there is not a God, they have somehow allowed themselves to believe a lie because they have suppressed the truth that is right in front of them. And this is what he teaches. And this is a hard word for many people, but this is what he begins to teach. And so he says this, and then notice what he goes on to say in verse 21 and 23. For although they knew God, deep down they knew there was a God, they did not glorify Him as God, neither were they thankful. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they knew God, but they rejected Him, and something started happening to their minds. I saw something recently where the Cartoon Network was was doing a, a kid's thing, teaching children basically that you, you can't tell what a person is by looking at them. You shouldn't assume somebody's gender. And that we don't really know what a person's gender is. They have to tell you what that gender is. But see, what we have all known throughout creation and throughout design is that I can look at a human being and I can know whether or not they're a male or a female. And biologically, According to science, a male has an X and a Y chromosome and a female has two X chromosomes. This is biological. It's by design. It's by creation. But when our futile hearts are darkened and our minds are darkened because we reject the truth of God, we begin to believe things that are contrary to God's design. This is what he's saying. 
He's saying when you reject God, you begin to be handed over to this type of thinking and your, your mind is darkened. Your heart is darkened. And here's what he says. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. How many people in our world today, they claim to be wise, man. They got it figured out. They're teaching all the smart stuff in the universities. And although they claim to be wise, he said they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, this is really interesting because it says they exchanged the glory of God. Do you know what the glory of God is? The glory of God is, is it's the nature of God. It's the character of God. It's who he is. But throughout the New Testament, when the Bible teaches about the glory of God, he has designed this world so that human beings are the carriers of the glory of God. He made you in his image and in his likeness. And how God is most clearly seen in this world is through people who believe in the truth of God and are filled with the spirit of God so that they reveal the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and gentleness and mercy of God through their very lives. The most God that many people are going to see are through men and women who worship Jesus Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit and the love of God is flowing through them. He says that's the glory of God. And what you did is you forfeited the glory of God this idea that you were to be filled with the Spirit of God to represent Jesus Christ in the earth, to represent God in the world. And you said, no, I don't want to represent God. I'd rather make something that becomes God for me. And what we do is this. We were given this creation, this world, you and I, as image bearers of God, to steward things like money, to steward things like creation, the trees, the natural resources. We were to steward the animals. We were to steward and govern what it means to, to have a family, to, to, take, to take care of sex and food. But instead, what we did is we made sex and food and money God. He said, you guys were supposed to be my image bearers. You were supposed to represent me in the world and steward these things like sex, food, and money. And instead, you made sex, food, and money images and made them gods. And we do this, don't we? We put these things in place of God and we laid down our lives for them. Americans have bought into a doctrine and an ideology and a way of thinking in which they have placed money and economics in the place of God in their lives and it's become God to them. And you'd lay down your life for another dollar. Amen. Now, obviously, we've got to work. We've got to steward what God gives us. We've got to earn a living. And we've got to be givers and generous people and these types of things. But those things are never our gods. We're called to represent God and steward those things. But see, we exchange the glory of God for images and we trade them. Now, in the Old Testament and even in Jesus' day, all of their gods embodied war. They embodied justice. They embodied wine. They embodied the economy. And today what we do is we just call them institutions. But really, they're still our gods. Amen. This is good, right? Verse 24 because of this, it says that God, therefore God gave them over. You see that language. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now he's going to use this language three times in the book of Romans in the first chapter of how God's wrath is being revealed. So number one, he says they exchanged the glory of God for images and God gave them over to impurity. Verse 25 they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. 
Now, when we exchange the truth about God for the lie, it's actually the, the lie that was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. It's the lie that all humanity has faced at every point in their lives. Hey, God is out there. He doesn't really know what's best for you, and He doesn't have your best interests in mind. And so why don't you reject Him? Because you can be as God's yourself, knowing and determining for yourself what is good and evil. You don't need an oppressive God telling you what is good and evil. That is the lie, that you can be your own God that you can chart your own course, that you can make your own decision because you're smarter than God and you know better than God and you know what's going to work out better. And he says they exchanged that truth of God for the lie. And he said because of that, they worshiped and served what God created rather than the creator himself. What that means is we don't really want to worship God. We just want the stuff that he can give us. And this is why in America, a lot of times what's more popular is the prosperity gospel. We'll come to God if He'll heal us and give us more money and give us a nicer house. Amen. But can I tell you that oftentimes, especially throughout history, when you come to God, things don't always go better for you in this world. Because ultimately what we have in God transcends the circumstance of this world. God does bless us with finances. God does bless us with nice things sometimes. But that is not the promise that He gives us in this world. The promise that He gives us is a peace and a joy and a life abundant that transcends whether you have those things or not. And He brings us into this reality where we worship the one who created all things and we know that one day we will inherit all things. This earth will be restored and everything you will own all things in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that He will withhold from you. And we look forward to that day, but right now we're in the in-between. But it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and served created things rather than the Creator. And verse 26, it says, Because of this, God gave them over. To shameful us. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the second thing that it says is that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and God gave them over to shameful lust. It's a perversion of human sexuality and a violation of God's design. Now here's what's so interesting is that we think, you know what, when people commit some form of sexual perversion, God's going to pour out His wrath on that. What this is teaching is that because they rejected God, God does pour out His wrath and He hands them over and that creates the sin in us. He's handing us over to our sins. Now, I know this sounds awful right now, but I'm telling you, this is not the end of the story. This is why it's in Romans chapter 1. Because the rest of the book is about the salvation of Jesus Christ. Amen. So don't get too upset and leave on me just yet. Jesus Christ has come on a rescue mission because we all fell into Romans chapter 1. We were all given over to these things. And they're manifesting in our lives. And we don't see God pouring out judgment and wrath and punishment directly because we sin. We see our sins manifesting because God is handing us over to them. And it's a different way of looking at things. And so in verse 28 it says, Furthermore, as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over third time to a depraved mind so that they do what, they ought, what ought not to be done. So they shut God out of their thinking altogether. I shut God out of my thinking altogether. Did not like to retain God's, the knowledge of God in my mind. We begin to mock God. We belittle God. The third thing is they rejected the knowledge of God. And so God gave them over to 
a depraved mind. Now, a depraved mind, in the old King James Version, it would say reprobate mind. And I remember when I first went to church, the, the, that, that phrase reprobate mind was used so often to really, it's a scare tactic. Like, you know, they get up and the pre, I was talking to you about angry preachers. Like they get up and they're mad and fire at sin. And you know, I'll tell you what, you're going to go out and say a cuss word and God's going to hand you over to a reprobate mind, you know? And, like, like, and what that meant was if you mess up one time, God's just going to get so upset that he's just going to let you go and there's no chance of you ever being saved again. Can I tell you this? That I was once a person who had a reprobate and a depraved mind. I had been handed over to my sins. These sins were manifesting in my life. God had handed me over to a reprobate mind. But just because humanity has a mind that can't discern good from evil, and maybe they're practicing sexual sin, maybe they're living outside of God's will, but that is not the end for them. This is why Jesus came, because He wanted to save those and rescue those who had a reprobate mind. Amen. So this is not, just because we see these things coming does not mean it's the end. God is not done with anybody. I don't care how far they've gone. I don't care what length of sin, what depth of sin. Our job is not to be angry with those people. Our job is to say, hey, this is why Jesus came. Because every single one of us were in the same position that you are in. And right now in your mind, I know that you don't understand the truth of God. But if you'll come to His Word and just listen to the Gospel for a minute. Jesus loved you. He wants you reconciled to the Father. And He will change the way you think. He'll change the way you think. See, the good news about Jesus Christ is He gives us a new heart and a new mind. We were all in this condition. It wasn't as if Christian people were raised and born and they were all good people growing up and then they had a right mind and the rest of the world had a reprobate mind and they just got saved because they had a good mind. No, God pulls the very worst of us out of the darkness and out of the pit and gives us a new mind and teaches us how to think correctly. And that's why it's just Romans 1, folks. 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 is about how Jesus comes and saves us from the wrath of God and how He gives us a new mind and puts us on a new path. But He says when we're handed over, in verse 29 through 32, He says they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, is this not the condition of our world at large? That all of us, the mess of us as a whole, practice these things, and deep down we know that in the end, there's something on the inside of us that knows we will be judged for our actions and we will stand in judgment for what we've done in the body, whether good or whether evil. But it says not only do they agree with these things and practice them, but they approve of those who practice them. And so it's the longest list of vice in the New Testament. And basically, here's what it's saying. He's saying this is what happens when, God fi- when you reject God so much that He finally says, all right. Do what you want. And He hands you over. This is the wrath of God manifesting. That is the list. We think it's the opposite. We think we go out and do those things and then God gets mad and pours out wrath. Now what this is saying is we reject God. He hands us over. And that's the wrath of God being produced in us. You see the difference? And there is a, there, there's a distinct difference. Here's what N.T. Wright, a really good New Testament scholar, says. He says, the great evils of the 20th century 
have reminded us that unless God remains implacably opposed to the evil that distorts and defaces creation, not least humanity, that God is not good. See, he's saying if God, if God is not against the evil that happens in the world, when you talk about the 20th century, it was the bloodiest century in human history. World War I, World War II, Hitler killing 10 million Jews, Mussolini killing 50,000, right? Joseph Stalin killing 20,000. These authoritarian governments just murdering people in mass and all of these wars breaking out in human history. And you see the bloodiest century in human history. And he says, if God is not opposed to that, there's no way we can sit back and sing he's good. Amen. And so he says, Paul's whole theology is grounded in the robust scripturally rooted view that the Creator is neither a tyrant. That means that He's not controlling everybody and dominating them and killing them when they mess up. So He's not a tyrant, nor is He an absentee landlord. He's not just saying, I don't care. But rather the Creator and lover of the world, and the result is God's wrath. Not just an attitude of hostility toward idolatry and immorality, but also actions that follow from that attitude. The content of God's wrath involves the process of God's giving people over to the result of their own folly, but also more. Those consequences are also an anticipation of a final judgment, the death spoken of in Romans 1.32. The two are organically connected. Moral degradation in the present anticipates the ultimate degrading of humanness itself in death. See, death is not just a tacked-on punishment that God says, I'm going to kill you if you do that. Death is the result of the fact that we chose sin in the first place. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God didn't say, well, now I've got to kill you. He said, no, that is a result of the fact that you chose sin over me. He's not the one bringing the direct punishment. He is allowing our choices to play out in front of us. So when we even talk about hell... C.S. Lewis kind of said it like this. He said, anybody that ends up going to hell will go to hell because they chose it. He said they will go there because they rejected God and they rejected heaven now. Matter of fact, he said they'll go to hell because right now, by their very lifestyle, they declare they don't want heaven. They don't want God. They don't desire Him. And so in the begin right now, there's a moral degradation as, as people move away from God. And what hell is, is finally God finally completely removing His hand completely from you and saying, you want that? I'll let you go all the way. And it ends up in a final judgment and a final removal and a final handing over. Does this make good sense to you? And when we understand this, it causes us to view what God does a little bit differently because when we talk about God, the wrath of God, the church fathers would say it this way. They would say that the wrath of God really is a metaphor. And people get scared when you use language like that. But here's the thing. When we talk about God, the Bible says that God is a man, a rock, a fortress, a tower, a husband, a father, a mother, a warrior, a charioteer. He's a farmer and also he's a sleeper. But do you know that God is actually none of these things? These are metaphors for us to understand God. God never goes to sleep, but yet He's called a sleeper. And so the church fathers say that in a sense, the wrath of God is a biblical metaphor that describes the very real consequences of going through life against the grain of love. He says, God, because He is love, He creates the world. 
And when we choose to go against the grain of the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, when we choose to not love God and we choose to not love our neighbor, we go against the grain of the love of God and we suffer the shards of self-inflicted punishment. Amen. And this is why when we talk about the wrath of God, here's, here's one of the first things that you can say about the wrath of God. God's wrath is divine consent to our self-destructive rebellion against God. And we've said this over and over again. That really it's just God saying, you know what, if you want to destroy yourself, I will allow you to do so. God will not coerce you. He will not force you. If you reject Him and you choose something when He is speaking to you, He will allow you to go do what you want to do. And here's the thing. He doesn't even have to punish you because the sin that you commit is punishment in and of itself. Tell me somebody that has lived a sinful lifestyle moving in the direction away from God and says, you know what, I'm happier than I've ever been. That may last for a season because the Scripture even says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but the wages of that sin is death and ultimately you will reap what you sow and you will experience brokenness and depression and anxiety and fear and all of these things and you're still empty because you're missing the one thing that you've always been designed for, the love of God in your heart. And God's not mad at you in the sense that He just is, is just fuming. No, He's on a rescue mission. He's after you. He wants you restored to that love. And so God's wrath is differently. But secondly, God's wrath, see, is a dimension of His love. His wrath is aimed at what interferes with love. You know, I, I tell Jeremy all the time how good of a parent he is. And he, he'll, he'll chase in little Everett real quickly. You know what I'm talking about? And a lot of parents, a lot of parents, you know, have different parenting techniques or whatever. But see, here's the thing. If, if Everett is doing something, imagine Everett going over to a fire and saying, Daddy, I think I'll put my hand in that. And him just saying, okay, son, test it out. Would that be love, my friends? That would not be love. Love is reacting harshly, almost violently, to grab his hand and say, no, don't you ever put your hand in that fire. Why? Because his love for his son says, you cannot do that, you will destroy yourself. God's anger, God's wrath is a dimension of His love. And His wrath never sets above His love. It flows out of His love. People will say sometimes, they'll say, well, you know, everybody wants to preach about God as a God of love, but God's also a God of wrath. No, God is a God of love, and His wrath is aimed at that which destroys love. And so when we talk about God's wrath, we're talking about a God that never ceases to be good. Not a God that loves to punish people or is, or is just fuming mad at people. It's a God who loves His children, loves His creation. And sometimes when we're trying to reveal God's na nature, what happens with us as the church is we either, either move into one extreme or the other. We either, either become the parents that just say, okay, stick your hand in the fire and not say anything to them because we don't want to offend anybody. And we call that love. Love is not affirming people in sin. That's just not love. But it's also not being rude to them while they're in sin. It's loving them with the gospel and saying Jesus' arms are open and He calls you to repentance because what you're doing right now is not bringing you joy anyway. And you know God wants to restore you and here's the gospel. Jesus died for you and He wants to give you new life. And loving them in the middle of that sin, that's what true love is. So it's, not, it's neither letting go nor is it being mean and angry about sinners. It's about bringing them the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, God's wrath has both a present and a future dimension to it. 
So we see that God's wrath is already being revealed in the sin that is manifesting in the world. But see, it also has a future dimension to it because when we, we read this list of sin, here's what happens in the church house most often. When we read a big list of sin, what Christian people do is they get self-righteous and they start to think, I don't do any of those things, those filthy sinners out in the world. you know. And we get all self-righteous. But I love what Paul says right after this list of sins in Romans 2, 1 through 6. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt, notice this, for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed and God will repay each person according to what they have done. And so he's saying you judge another and you condemn yourself. He says God's righteous judgment is going to be revealed against all sin and all things will be made right one day. So right now God is he, he's, he's, he's patient. Notice the language there. He says, do you not realize that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? And here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say it's the wrath of God, the fear of God, the anger of God, this fear that He's going to cast you into the fires of hell. That can lead you to repentance. It helped lead me to repentance. I said it before, right? Like I was afraid of hell and that spurred me on. But it could not sustain me because it's the love of God, the goodness of God, and the kindness of God that finally brings you to a point where you come to this one true God who loves you more than anything. And it's that love of God that sets you free. The love of God. The fear of God will get you started, but the love of God is what finally sets you free. And he says, do you despise his kindness, his, for good, his forbearance, his patience with you? He says, you're rejecting God and you're storing up wrath for yourself. Essentially, you're storing up this, this, this sense of God finally saying, if you are not going to turn, I have no other choice but to let you go. And in the end, I will have to allow you to go if you continue to harden your heart against me. I will have to fully give you over to this. But see, God is slow to anger, and this is what it says over and over again. When we talk about God's wrath, we should always say first that His nature is not wrathful. It's slow to wrath, slow to anger. So right now, even the reason people will say, man, I can't, you know, God's going to come back and He's fed up with the evil in the world. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of evil in the world, always has been. But because God is slow to anger, see, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And therefore, He's long-suffering and patient because He is giving some of these people with reprobate minds time to hear the gospel and come to their senses and turn back to the love of God and be saved. He wants this to happen. And this is where it falls on the church that we have this responsibility as image bearers of God to not forfeit the glory of God, but to come into God's presence and say, Lord, let us share the love of God with humanity. Let us be patient with sinners. Let us be forbearing in love, but let us speak the truth in love in the gospel so that they can come to repentance and experience your love and your goodness. Amen. Number four, Jesus saves us from God's wrath. Romans 5. So you're moving through Romans 
And he, and he paints the picture of all of this sin in humanity. And it goes on and in Romans 3 it says that all of us, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all fell into that category. It's just not sinners outside of the church. It's you and I. And then it says that by faith we can be saved because of what Jesus has done. And then in Romans 5 it says this in, in verses 6 through 9. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, notice this, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Now Paul is speaking to the Romans and he's speaking in Roman language because they would think it would be a noble act to die on behalf of your commanding officer in the Roman army. And he said sometimes people will be like, you know what, this is a noble dude, I'm going to die for him. But he says this, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't even good. Matter of fact, we betrayed God. We were enemies of God. And while we were still sinners, we didn't do anything good to God. Matter of fact, we'd have crucified Him and killed Him. And He said it was in our sin that Jesus says, I'm going to die for them boys and girls. And He says, since now we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him. Now see what Paul does is he does not foreground the wrath of God in talking about the cross. When you talk about the cross, a lot of people will say, well see God's wrath was being poured out on the cross. It was. Let me get to how that was actually happening. But see, Paul does not foreground the wrath of God at the cross of Jesus. He foregrounds the love of God. Y'all know John 3.16, for God was so angry at the world that He gave His only begotten. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, for God so loved the world. We like to think and teach sometimes that, that, that for God was so angry at the sin of the world that He had to punish somebody. And so He sent His Son to earth and whipped a fire out of Him. That's not what the Scripture says. It says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And this word gave, y'all like Greek words, don't you? This is an important one, so I'm going to give it to you and your brain will grow just about a half inch. For God gave. There's a word there. It's called didomai. Say didomai. Oh, praise God, you just learned a Greek word. Now this word is used very often in Scripture and it gives us some understanding because when he says three times in Romans 1, God gave them over, it's the same word over and over again. Parodidomai, parodidomai, parodidomai. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Now notice this because it's important. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Same word. He gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Same as Romans 1. Matthew 26, 1 through 2, Jesus, He was talking to His disciples and He says, As you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will what? Be handed over to be crucified. Parodidomai. Acts 2, 23-24, Peter is preaching to the men that crucified Jesus and he says, This man was what? handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, 
putting to death by nailing Him to the cross, but God raised Him from the dead, freeing Him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep His hold on Him. See, when we think about God punishing Jesus and pouring out wrath, we think about God getting so angry that He's the one inflicting the beating and the whipping and the crown of thorns on His head. But what it actually teaches and says is that God is the one who handed Jesus over and the wicked men crucified Him and killed Him and beat Him and God raised him from the dead beating the powers of death so who's the one that killed Jesus you and I killed Jesus but wasn't God's wrath poured out on the cross it absolutely was well how was it poured out Jesus taught it and he understood what was going on because what happened in the old covenant when they would worship false gods over and over again he'd hand them over to the Assyrians he'd hand them over to the Babylons Rome had come in and God was ready once again because of Israel's rebellion to hand them over to the Romans. When Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, He says, Lord, if it be Your will, take this cup from me. He's referring to an old covenant metaphor because the cup of God's wrath always started whenever it was said, He would say, that cup of wrath is full and I'm about to hand them over to the Assyrians. God was going to hand all Israel over to Rome, but instead, Jesus stepped into Israel's place. He stepped into your and mine place. And instead of God handing us over, God handed His Son over. Because you know, throughout Jesus' life and ministry, they tried to kill Him and they couldn't. He would pass through the crowd. He had divine protection. God the Father had not yet released His hand because He was sinless and had God's divine hand on Him. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of the sin of the world of you and I was laid on Jesus and He began to sweat great drops of blood. And He felt the Father's hand lifting off of Him and He said, Father, if it be Your will, let this cup pass from Me. I do not want to drink this. I don't want Your hand coming off my life. The most frightening thing is not God punishing you. The most frightening thing is God taking His hand off your life. Y'all get it twisted. We get it twisted. We think the most frightening thing is to fall into the hands of an angry God. The most frightening thing is for an angry God to lift His hand. To give you over to your desires. To give you over to your sinful actions. But see, the good news is, is He handed Jesus over he sweat grape drops of blood. The Romans took him, mocked him, beat him, crucified him. And on the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because throughout the old covenant, when God would hand them over, it says that he would hide his face. And for that moment, Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect sinless Son of God, the face of the Father was hidden from him for the first time ever. And in that moment, he sensed the wrath of God, the full rejection. And he bore the weight of the wrath of God that was poured out. And see, he took that for you and I. And he was handed over. And I love it because you remember Barabbas was standing beside Jesus in judgment. You and I are Barabbas. Barabbas had taught the people, hey, y'all need to kill these Romans. They're oppressing us. They're taking full control. Let's kill them. Jesus had taught them to love the Romans. And instead, they let Barabbas go and they crucify the innocent Jesus. You and I were Barabbas and God is letting us go. And he's taking the wrath of God upon himself. Now what we don't see is God saying, you know what, I'm so mad at you, I needed to kill you for your sins, but instead I poured my wrath out on Jesus and killed him in his place. No, what we see is a God who should have handed us over to death, but instead he took the death and the punishment on himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
God was receiving His own rejection, His own punishment upon Himself so that you could receive a love and a grace and a mercy that you did not deserve. This is why the wrath of God is beautiful. And I'm going to close with this one story and I'm done. Amen? Luke 15. Some of the best stories in Scripture. It says that these sinners and tax collectors drew near to Jesus. I always love how the Bible just calls them straight up sinners. You know what I'm talking about? Like, how are you going, you going to do that in public? You go out and hey, there's some sinners over there. That wouldn't work out very well socially. But it meant, these sinners meant that they had probably done something that had caused them to get cast out of temple worship. It meant that they didn't deserve to be in a church on Sunday, essentially. That they had done something that cast them out. That they had been rejected. But what happens is they draw near now to Jesus. And as they draw near to Jesus, He starts telling them parables. And He talks about how God rejoices and there's joy in heaven over one sinner that comes to repentance more than 99 righteous people. Let me put it to you this way. Every single one of us, we could be holy and pure. We could have been sinless this week and God would have sat there and went, that's good, I'm proud of you. But you could find one in here in that Romans 1 list with a reprobate mind who was living the ungodliest life you could ever imagine. And if they turn to Jesus this morning, there is a celebration that breaks out in heaven because there's nothing that brings more joy to the Father than when He can no longer remove His hand, but He places His hand on those who were far away from Him. And there's joy that breaks out. Now you remember the Son, He comes to the Father, the prodigal Son, and He says, hey Father, He said, give me my inheritance, drop dead, I'm going to go live my own life. And you know what happens? The Father allows Him to. He gives Him His inheritance and He moves away from the love of the Father, away from the care of the Father, away from the presence of the Father, and you see the wrath of God beginning to be manifested. He ends up losing everything. He, he blows all of His inheritance the same way that we blow our lives not loving God, not knowing God. And He loses everything. And then all of a sudden you see the wrath of God start to manifest in His life because what's happening is He loses everything and He joins Himself to a citizen and He starts feeding pigs, which represents the curse. It represents sinfulness. It represents brokenness. And He's eating the same stuff that the pigs are eating. And He says in my mind, man, my, hired, my dad's hired servants are living better than I'm living. I'll go back and I'll ask Him to make me one of His hired servants. Now what we would imagine concerning the wrath of God is that as he's coming home, I mean, if I'd have been the father, I'd have been like, oh, son, come on up here. And you imagine the God, being, God being so angry that he's about to whip his son and beat him and give him a lashing for wasting all of that money and all of those things. And the wrath of the father was going to be poured out. But you know what? Maybe he wouldn't pour it out on him. Maybe he would go get one of his hired servants because he's so angry and beat him half to death to placate his wrath and his anger. That's not what happens, is it? The father sees his son coming a long way off. He's already experienced the wrath of the father because the father simply let him go. And now he's returning. And the father sees him a great way off. And he runs out to meet him. He falls on his neck. He begins to kiss him while he's covered in pig slop. And he says, get him a robe and clothe him. Put a ring on his finger. Give him the family name back kill the fatted calf and strike up a band. My son who was lost has returned home. So what I want you to understand is that the wrath of God in and of itself is redemptive in nature. Is redemptive in nature. Now, that son could have experienced the full wrath of the father. All he had to do was choose to not come home. 
to remain the way that he desired in the beginning. But what happens is God hands us over and in our reprobate mind and in our sinfulness, what we begin to realize on the inside of us is this cannot be what we were made for. And there in that place, you see that the wrath of God is ultimately an overflow of the love of God. Because sometimes God's got to allow us to hit rock bottom before we come to our senses like the son did and say, I got to go back home. Even if, my, even if my dad is mad, it's got to be better than the way I'm living right now. But every time you go back home, what you find is not the anger of your dad. You find the love of your dad ready to kiss your neck, hug your neck, and, and bring you back into the kingdom. And I just feel in my heart that some of you here this morning, whether you've said you're a Christian or whether you've never been a Christian, this morning, that's what you need to experience. Some of you, you have been experiencing the wrath of God. And it's simply God just saying to you, yeah, you can do what you want to do. I'll allow you to do it and suffer the consequences of that sin. But my love for you has not changed. I'm patient towards you. I'm gracious towards you. I'm merciful and I'm compassionate. And I've been waiting for you just to come to your senses and turn back to the Father and receive the love of the Father because I'm here for you and I want you and I need you. That's God. This is why the wrath of God is a good thing. Amen. Has that corrected some of your thoughts about what the wrath of God truly is? Nothing. When you think about God, never let any, even His judgment and His justice, there will be a final judgment. There will be final justice. People who do not come up under the salvation of Jesus Christ will have to pay for their sins. It's a fact. There is eternal life and there is a life that is away from God eternally. There is a place called hell. These are all realities. But God loves you so much that He sent His Son to save you from God's wrath, to set you on a new set of train tracks so you don't have to experience your own destruction, destructive patterns of behavior. Amen. I'm going to finish with these verses because I want somebody to hear this and I feel like these verses will speak to you if you'll allow them to. Isaiah 54, verse 7 through 10. It says, For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion... I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is what the Lord says to you because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's not His heart to be angry with you. He wants you to experience His compassion and His love. I want you to bow your heads with me right where you're at. This morning, if this is you, and I mean whether you've claimed to be a Christian or maybe maybe you're not at all. But this morning, you've not experienced this love of God. And you say, man, it's, I, it's, it's time for me to come back to the Father. I'm coming to my senses. I have an awareness that I need Jesus and I want to experience this salvation. I want to be saved from God's wrath, not just in the life to come, but right in the here and now. And if that's you and you say, that's me, I want to pray, I want to believe God, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus, would you lift your hand high where I can see you this morning? I see one hand, two hands, three. They're coming. Anybody else? See another one. Anybody else? For you that lifted your hand, and for those that didn't, I want you to still, I want us to pray this together. I want you to pray this and mean it with your heart. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we believe that you sent Jesus 
to die for my sins on the cross. And Lord, you handed him over to take the weight of my sin and the weight of my wrath. But Lord, your heart toward me is not anger. Your heart toward me is not wrath, but your heart toward me is love. And that is why you gave your life for me. So I confess my sin to you now, Lord Jesus. I ask you to forgive me for that sin. I ask you to wash me in your blood, Lord Jesus. And I give you my life, Lord. I confess you, Jesus, as Lord of my life. And I'm coming back into the arms of the Father this morning. And Lord, I'm giving my life to you. My trust and my faith is in you this morning. I surrender everything to you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.